Hey everyone, this is Johnny Martinez, pastor of Restoration Church, and welcome to our podcast. We hope this podcast inspires you and encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. We hope you enjoy the sermon. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to 1 John, the letter of 1 John. We're going to be looking at verse, uh, chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, 1 through 6 this morning. A lot of great things going on at Restoration Church. Um, small groups already kicked off. Uh, Restoration U class that Daniel's going to be teaching. Looking forward to that. Such a solid topic uh, in our world today, the, the importance of the local church, right? Um, so yeah, 1 John chapter 2, we're going to continue in our series again. Let me just remind you, there are free Journals, First John journals in the info center. Um, take one; um, you can have one of those. But uh, yeah, I want to read the text first this morning. First John chapter two. Let's read it. It says, "My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous." He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for us our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this text. We thank you for your word. We just pray that you would speak to our hearts, you speak to our minds, and that you would speak to our wills to do what you've called us to do. God, I pray today that you would, through this message, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable that they may walk and grow in you jesus we love you holy spirit i pray you would illuminate the words on this page and make them really stick to our heart and to our mind and to our soul deeply to love jesus deeply in your name we pray amen and amen i don't know about you but when i grew up uh, i grew up under a church or in a church that taught that you could lose your salvation. Uh, that's the, the, taught, the, the church that I sat under, that you could lose your salvation. And uh, while uh, I think that's a secondary topic, I think there's a lot of believers uh, and well-meaning believers that hold to that, and I think that's totally okay. I think there's, a, there's some good arguments for that, but I, I, that's the church that I grew up in and the teaching that I grew up in, that you could lose your salvation. And so I remember as a child, even as a junior higher, as a teenager, and even into my early college years, I would be extremely fearful uh, to go to hell. I was so fearful because I don't know about you, but I would always think like, man, if I don't confess every single sin, then I'm going to hell. Like, like if I confess my sins and then I'm okay and then I have a bad thought and then I get in a car accident, I'm, I'm, that's my train of thought. And if I get in a car accident and I die, then I'm going to hell. And I was always worried and worried and worried about 
what happens when I die? What if I get in a car accident? What if I die all of a sudden and I didn't confess every sin? And what about the sins that I don't know? And so I just would struggle with my assurance of salvation. And the truth is that there are many, many believers that struggle with their assurance of salvation, doubting where you're headed after you take your last breath. And I don't know if that's you, but that's been my story. And it, was, it wasn't until I really started understanding Jesus' work on the cross for me to both secure my salvation and to secure my assurance of salvation that it really just uh, helped me feel, uh, you know, just firm in who I was and, and that Christ was holding me. You see, you, I believe that you can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your assurance of salvation. And maybe that's where some of you are at today. You're like, man, I don't know where I'm going to go. Like, I really have no idea. If I take my last breath today, I have no idea where I'm going to go. You begin to doubt. You begin to doubt where you will spend eternity. And so my hope and my prayer today is that you would um, just find so much comfort in these verses today. Like, like verse 1 and verse 2, church, I got to tell you, if you struggle with assurance of salvation and you doubt if you're in Christ, you're going to hold on to these verses and you're going to cling to these verses like no other. And that's the first group I want to comfort you believer who are truly in Christ and you just doubt. I hope and pray that after this message, after the word, you will doubt no more. Now, there's another group that I want to talk to this morning as well. In every single church, there's people who are professing to be believers when they're truly not. Kind of self-deceived, self-deception. And I hope and pray that today that God would truly remove that um, veil from your eyes to see the condition that you're really in, the state that you're really in, so you could really come to Christ truthfully, finally, and genuinely, and that you may find comfort in that as well. So here's what I want to do. I have two main headings, very simple. And so if you're taking notes, here's the first one. It's this. I want you to notice this. I want you to notice, notice assurance secured, that Jesus secures our assurance. Jesus not only secures our salvation, but he also secures our assurance. Look at verse 1. Uh, here in this passage. He says, my little children, this is John talking to the church. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So why do believers, and he's speaking to believers, why do believers need an advocate? John gives us the reason why. He says, but if anyone does sin, what he's really trying to say here is like, look, I'm writing these things so you don't practice sin, but the truth is that you're a fallen creature in this earth and you're still going to sin. And so we need an advocate because we are still going to sin. You see, true believers don't practice sinning. We don't live in a lifestyle of sin, but we still sin. Let me put it, let me put it this way. True believers are not sinless, but we do sin less 
as we grow in maturity, we don't practice sin. We don't have a lifestyle of, of sin in our life, but yet we still sin. Now, we have an advocate with the Father, John says. The word advocate can also be translated helper. In John chapter 14, it's in speaking of the Holy Spirit. He is the helper. And the word can mean this. It means this, one who appears in another's behalf, a mediator or an intercessor. So, so an advocate is someone who appears in another's behalf, something like a defense attorney. That's really what John is trying to get at. So I want you to picture this. I want you to picture a cosmic courtroom, cosmic courtroom, where God the Father is the judge. God the Father is the judge, and you are on trial. Like you are on trial. You're on the stand. God the Father's the judge, and we have a prosecuting attorney, Satan. Satan is the prosecuting attorney. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says that he is the accuser of the brethren, right? And so he is the prosecuting attorney, and so he's trying to dig up as much dirt on your life and saying, here, look, judge, how can you let this sinner be okay with you? Look at everything he or she has done. How, how can they even come into your presence? So he's accusing you of all of your sin and dirt. Then you have your defense attorney, Jesus. He is your defense attorney. Now, the very interesting thing about this defense attorney is that he is not pleading your innocence. He's not saying, hey, look, look, my client is innocent. Please let them go. No, he's not doing that. Jesus, your defense attorney, is actually acknowledging your guilt. Jesus is saying, hey, Father, yes, they're guilty. They're completely guilty of sin. Completely guilty of sin. Yes, I understand they deserve eternal punishment. But I died for them. But I rose again. But I paid the price for their sins. And so Jesus is pleading on your behalf based on his death and resurrection as your defense attorney. Romans chapter 8, 33 and 34 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is what interceding for us. So Jesus is currently interceding in this cosmic courtroom as your advocate, not pleading your innocence, but pleading his righteousness on your behalf. That's what it means to be an advocate. Believer. I need to tell you two things about your lawyer. For those of you that are truly in Christ, like truly in Jesus, you have the best defense attorney ever. You want me to tell you how good your defense attorney is? I hope you cling on to this. Let me tell you two things, believer, about your defense attorney, Jesus. Number one, 
Your defense attorney never leaves the courtroom. He never leaves the courtroom. Your defense attorney has no days off. He, he works all day and all night to be an advocate on your behalf. Let me prove it to you from the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Since he always lives to make intercession. He is always making intercession for you and I. He is always being our mediator. He is always pleading uh, your case on his behalf. He's always at work. He doesn't leave the courtroom. He has no days off. Number two, not only does your defense attorney, Jesus, never leave the courtroom, but he has never lost a case. He is perfect. Your defense attorney, Jesus, has never lost a case. Not one. How do I know that? John chapter 6, verse 39 says this. And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus saying this, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That the, those that the father gives the son, he will not lose one. Those that he advocates for, he will not lose one. John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He's never lost one. No one has ever snatched a believer outside of the hand of Christ, from the hand of Christ. Your defense attorney, Jesus, is always working for you and he's never lost a case, meaning that your assurance is secure, believer. Now, Anyone thankful for that? Because I am. Now, what about if you don't believe in Christ? What if you're not in Christ? I have one thing for you. There are no other options. Jesus is your only attorney. There are no other options, my friends. 1 Timothy chapter 2 says this, for there is one God and there's one mediator. One mediator between God and man, that is Christ Jesus. There's not many ways to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. And it's through Christ, your one mediator. You only have one option. When you go look on Google for a spiritual defense attorney, there's only one. And that's Jesus. You can attempt to represent yourself in this cosmic courtroom, but you take your works and you will find that your works will not hold up in court. Your good life, your good deeds, they will not hold up in court because why? Because there's only one that's righteous. Isn't that what John says? Jesus the righteous, one who obeyed the law perfectly. And it's Jesus. So I encourage you, I beg you, I plead with you today. Make Jesus your defense attorney. Place your faith in him. He's the only way. So Jesus not only advocates for us currently and always, making sure that our salvation is secure, 
which gives us assurance of salvation. But look at verse 2. He is the propitiation, not only our advocate, but our propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation, that's a really fancy word, right? Like a really theological word. You, you, really, you rarely hear it in sermons these days. But in order for us to understand what propitiation means, we need to understand the doctrine or the teaching of God's wrath. And we need to understand another thing that doesn't get taught much these days. But we need to understand that God's wrath is an, ex is an extension of his holiness and his justice. So God is a holy, perfect, and pure God. And when we sin, we don't sin against any, just anyone. We sin against a holy and perfect and righteous God. And this holy and perfect, perfect righteous God is also a just God, meaning that he will not let one single sin go unpaid for. He will not let one single sin go unpunished. And so there are only two ways that sins will be paid for. Either on the cross through Jesus bearing the wrath of God on himself or by someone in hell. There's only two ways sins are paid for. Either on the cross or in hell. That's the only way God's wrath will be appeased. And so here John is saying that Jesus is our propitiation. He is bearing the fury and the wrath, righteous wrath of God upon himself for every single sin that has ever been committed in the history of humanity was upon Christ. And then those who place their faith in Jesus what happens is that God's fury turns into favor for them. That we're no longer enemies of God, but we're children of God. That's what it means to be a propitiation. He, Jesus appeased the wrath of God for us on our behalf. He's our propitiation. What I love about this hard doctrine, though, because, again, it really gets taught, right? When, when's the last time you heard a sermon on wrath? Right, maybe, well, last Christmas here, but you just don't hear it, but it's, it's in the Bible. And God's wrath is also future, meaning it's coming. It's coming for those who don't believe. But God is so loving, even in his wrath. He's so loving. Look, look at what First, First John says. We'll get to it later. It says this, it says, in 1 John verse 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We didn't love God. We didn't want anything to do with God, but yet he loved us so much that he sent his son, his one and only son, to bear his wrath upon himself when we didn't even love him. His motivation for propitiation was love. He sent his son to die for love. 
anyone thankful for that as well? Believer, you got to be thankful for that, man. That Jesus is our advocate. And that Jesus is our propitiation. If you're a believer, there's no condemnation. There's no fear. There's no judgment ever for you. Now, I don't know if you caught this, but look at verse 2. John says, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Isn't that interesting? That, that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. The question is then, does that verse mean that if Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, then everybody's going to be saved? That every single person is going to be saved? That's how many people translate that verse. Essentially, is this verse teaching universalism? which is really, really common these days, that everyone's just going to go to heaven because he's a propitiation. And they use this verse because he's a propitiation for the whole world. So what's really going on here? And the, by the way, the answer is no. Uh, we, <laughs> it's not. Um, what we need to do is we need to interpret some of the harder verses by using some of the clearer verses in other parts of the Bible. Right? We interpret some of the harder verses by using some of the clear verses in the Bible. And so time and time and time again, we know that there will be people in hell. Like we just know that throughout the scriptures, that is clear. So how do we then look at this verse? I think this is what's going on here. And this is what John is trying to say. Because if you remember, he says this. He's writing to believers in Asia Minor. He's saying this. He's the propitiation for our sins. Right? Our our meaning John and his community. There was a community of, of different house churches in that region that would follow John's leadership. And so he's saying he's not only our propitiation, you know, our group, but also for those in the entire world outside of our group that would come to later believe. Does that make sense? Okay, good. It's not like, hey, this is Salvation for everyone. No, John is saying it's for, for our sins. Jesus was a propitiation for our sins. And not just ours, but everyone else who would later come to believe. So that's what that verse is saying there. So verse 1 and 2. Let me say this about verse 1 and 2. That love secured not only our salvation, but our assurance of salvation. That love secured not only our salvation, but our assurance of salvation. Remember, believer, whenever you begin to doubt, know that there's a defense lawyer advocating for you, pleading your case. Remember, believer, when you begin to doubt your salvation, that Jesus already bore the wrath upon himself. And God no longer looks at you with fury, but favor and grace and mercy. Cling on to that. Now, assurance secured. Now, point number two, assurance tested. Assurance tested. It's like John wanted to talk about God in the first two verses, and then he kind of begins to talk about us to test our assurance, to see if we really know that we are in Christ. Look at verse three and four. It says this, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, God, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, 
and the truth is not in him. So notice what John says in verse 3. He says, by this we know. By this we know. This is what John is saying. By this we know. He uses the word know 40 times in four chapters. So for John, John wants his readers and us to know that we know Christ. That's his thing. That we, he wants us to know that we are for sure in Christ. Essentially what he's saying is that it is possible, it's completely possible to have assurance of salvation. Completely possible. It's, it's possible to know that you know and you're secure in Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says this. It says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. To confirm your calling and election. Peter's saying, guys, confirm your calling. Make sure that you're saved. Validate that you're saved. Again, like, like I said earlier, you can't lose your salvation, but you can lose your assurance of salvation. And so Peter and John here are saying, look, it's possible to know, and you got to confirm it. you got to examine yourself. you got to examine the fruit of your life, your desires, your will, your actions, your attitudes to make sure that you're in Christ. So it's completely possible to know that you're in Christ. I was, I was doing research this week. I came upon something that I really didn't know. Came upon something about the Roman Catholic Church who essentially denies the possibility of assurance. They deny the possibility that you can be truly saved, that you can know that you're truly saved. You see, because them, uh, Roman Catholics, you see, the, the mentality is this. God will always do his part. God is faithful. God will always do his part. But we don't know if we will always do our part. Therefore, you can never have assurance of salvation because you don't know if you're, you're going to keep up your end of the bargain. And essentially, it's salvation by works, not by faith. Roman Catholics deny salvation by faith alone. They de- they, did, they, they deny justification by faith. Actually, in the Council of Trent, a Roman Catholic council from 1545 to 1563, 40 Catholic bishops got together and they denied salvation by faith. They denied a lot of stuff. But these are their words straight from the Council of Trent. They say this, any believer's assurance of the pardon of his sins is vain and ungodly confidence from the Council of Trent. Roman Catholic Church says, you can't know that you know. But what does John say? I'm writing this so that you know that you have assurance of where you're going. You can know that you know him. So John says, by this we know that we have come to know him. We have come to know Christ. It's not just a mental knowledge. It's not just a knowing about. It's knowing him with your heart. It's knowing him with your soul. It's knowing him with this intimate relationship that you have. Because here's the thing. There's a huge difference between knowing about and knowing him with your heart. And I believe that there's so many people just mistaking about the way to know God. 
And I believe there's so many people that are going to miss heaven by about 20 to 18 inches here. Because it's one thing to know about, and it's one thing to really know him and love him and pursue him and cherish him. And to have an intimate relationship with him. But John says, he says, by this we know that we have come to know him. So how do we know, how do we know that we are truly saved? Like, how do we know, this is another test right here. How do we know that we're truly saved? How do we know that we actually know him? Look what he says. If you keep his commandments. If you keep his commandments. That's how you know that you're saved. It's another test, another mark of grace. You see, the word to keep here can also be translated to guard. And so the idea here is of believers guarding and gripping the commandments of God because they consider them so precious and valuable. That's the idea here. That John is saying, you know that you're in Christ when you... You're gripped by the love of God and you grip his commandments and you desire to obey them and you desire to please God. That's how you know you're saved. By obeying his commandments, by obedience. You see, the truth is these days that the word obedience is kind of a dirty word in church these days. It kind of is. I think pastors are really scared of saying, hey, you got to obey Christ. Why? Because a lot of times people are like, well, you're just being legalistic. You're just being legalistic. What about grace? What about grace? Yes, sure, God is gracious. But obedience has become a dirty word like sin and repentance and wrath and all those things. Let me remind you that obedience is Christianity 101. It's discipleship 101. If you truly know Christ, if you truly are in God, you obey what he tells you. And look what John says. He says, he says, commands. He says, if you keep God's commands, if you are gripped by God's commands, if you guard God's commands, what is a command? A command is an order from a superior. That's what that is. Like, like a general in an army who's giving commands to his soldiers. Could you imagine a general in an army giving commands to his soldiers and his soldiers being like, that's not a command, it's a suggestion. It's optional. Believers, a command is a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's, It's a command from God, from the king of the universe to us. And notice it's in the plural, commands. Not just the ones we'd like. And we're all guilty of that, right? I'm only going to obey the ones I like or the ones that are easy for me. No, plural, all of God's commands we're supposed to love, pursue, and live out. We can't just cherry pick them. Now, for clarity's sake, I'm not saying that we're to keep God's commands to be saved. Please hear me out. We keep God's commands not to be saved, but because we are saved. That's why we keep his commands. So John essentially says, hey, if you you want to know that you're in Christ, that you're truly saved, one of the ways to test yourself is do you obey the commands of God? 
If you say you really love God, do you obey him? Where do you think that comes from? It comes from Jesus himself. I want you to hear from the words of Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 15, this is Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14, 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's Jesus. And John's just echoing Jesus. You see, obedience to God's commands, to God's word, is external proof of an internal transformation. Our obedience to God, our external obedience, is evidence that we've truly been changed, that we're truly in Christ, that we truly know him. As I mentioned earlier, one of the motivations for God sending Jesus as his propitiation was love. Let me ask you today, what is your motivation to keep God's commandments? Like like when, when you hear that we are to obey God's commandments, what is your motivation? What drives you to, to, to obey God? I think a lot of us could fall under three categories. The first is I have to. I, I just have to, kind of like a slave, right? Like someone who's a slave has to do whatever their master says or they'll be punished or put to death. I have to. Like I just, in a sense, I, yes, we have to, but with that mentality, well, I just, I have to. The second group is, well, I need to. I just need to, to keep the commandments, kind of like an employee, right? I need to go to work because I need to make money and either I, I have to or I need to or thirdly, and, and I hope we're all here, I want to. I want to. I want to keep your commandments, God. I want to be obedient to you, God, from the heart. You see, you could obey God with your actions, but not with your, with your heart, and it's still sinful. Romans chapter 6, verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart. Paul tells of Romans. You were at one point slaves to sin. Now you're obedient from the heart. You want to be obedient. You delight in being obedient. You desire to be obedient to God. What category do you fall under? I have to. I guess I have to. I'm forced to. Well, I need to, I'm a Christian, or I want to, I desire to be obedient. And so that's what John says. For those who are truly in Christ, you know that you know that you know God if you obey his commandments. And then he gives a, a, a negative side to it in verse four. He says, whoever says I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Again, we covered this last week. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters what you do. 
you can say that you love Christ, you can say that you're a Christian, but if your actions don't reveal that, most likely you're not in Christ. You're not truly saved. It doesn't matter if you say you know Christ. What matters is, does Christ know you? It doesn't matter if you say, I know him. Does he know you? That's what truly matters. And so here what John is describing is a counterfeit Christian. Someone who is in church but not in Christ. John's describing someone who's self-deceived. Yeah, I know God. I, I have a personal relationship, but I don't obey him, but I'm still in Christ. That's self-deception, my friends. Can I just show you through a statistic how self-deceived our world is? Would you allow me to do that? Okay, thank you. I was going to do it anyway because it's in my notes. Barna did a study on hell. And they asked, they asked people, do you believe you're going to hell? 1% of people said, I'm going to hell. 1%. Everyone thinks they're going to be in heaven with God or reincarnated or whatever it is. Only 1%. But when I read Jesus' words of how many people will be in hell and how many people won't. I can't make the connection. There's something off. Listen to Jesus' words. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those that find it are few. Do you see the discrepancy there? One percent says, I'm not going out. But Jesus says, many are, yet few will find eternal life. A lot of self-deception in our world and in our churches. So, how do we know that we're in Christ? We obey his commandments. Not only that, but he gives us another test. It's very similar, essentially. Verse five, he says, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, it's really interesting that John says this in uh, but whoever keeps his word, in him that truly the love of God is perfected. What does that mean? What does it mean that the, the love of God is perfected in us? It means this. As we consistently obey God, our love for God will grow and mature. That as we consistently obey him and please him, our love for him will become complete, perfect in maturity. You see, the more you obey God, the more you love God. And the more you love God, the more you obey God. And that's what John is saying here. But again, he says, by this we know. Again, by this we know that we are in him. How do we know? How do we know, John? If we walk in the same way as he walked. The word to walk here simply means a lifestyle, the way that you live. You can know that you know Christ by the way that you live. How did Jesus walk? 
How did Jesus walk? Two things. Jesus walked in obedience. Perfect obedience to God. John calls him the righteous in our passage. He walked in perfect obedience. That's how Jesus walked. And that's how we know if we're in him, if we walked in obedience as well. Do you walk in obedience? Is your life characterized by being obedient to God, by obeying the commands of God out of delight and not duty? That's how you know if you're in Christ. Now, the beauty of this is that Jesus not only walked in obedience, but he also walked in love. And you're like, Johnny, I don't see love in our passage today. Where are you taking this out of? You see, when the Bible was written, it wasn't written with chapters and verses. And so what's interesting is that the very next section talks about brotherly love. So prior to this, it's about God's commandments. After this, it's about love, loving each other. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He walked in perfect obedience and he loved sacrificially, sincerely, and abundantly. So how do you know if you're in Christ? Do you obey his commandments? Do you walk as he walks? And then do you love the saints? We'll get into it a little more deeper next week, but do you love the saints? Do you love the brothers and sisters in this very room? Do you love sincerely? Do you love not only with words, but with actions? Do you love sacrificially? Charles Spurgeon said, the first thing about a Christian is initiation into Christ. The next thing is imitation of Christ. We're first initiated, but now we imitate. We walk as he walked, we obey as he obeyed, we love as he loved. So where do we go from here? What are we to do? I encourage you to test and rest. Test and rest. Test to see if you're truly in the faith. Examine your life, examine your fruit. Examine your obedience. Does your life look like the life of Christ or like the world? Examine yourself. Do I obey his commands out of delight? Do I walk as he walks in obedience? Do I love as he loves? Marks of a true believer. These must be, hear me out, these must be in your life. They must be. Test yourself. And if you come to realization that you're like, 
my life doesn't look like the life of Christ. Again, we're not gonna do it perfectly, right? But we're always striving and growing in maturity and holiness. But if you're like, hey, I'm not showing evidence. I don't have the evidence. Right then and there, I know a lawyer. I know a defense attorney. His name is Jesus. Call him. Call him. He'll defend you. He'll defend you. So test and rest. For those of you that said, man, I I know I'm in Christ. I know I'm secure. Will you just rest? Will you rest knowing that you have an advocate with the Father who is constantly always interceding for you? You just rest. Rest in his work on the cross. Rest in his work before the Father. You're not the mediator. I'm not the mediator, but we have a mediator. The name is Jesus. So rest. Rest that he's not only our advocate, but our propitiation. That God no longer looks at you with fury, with favor. Test rest. I hope you find assurance for your soul, comfort for your soul. Let us pray. Great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord. Lord, you are great. we're thankful for you. We're thankful that you came and you conquered sin and death for us. Lord, we're grateful that you bore the wrath of the Father for us, giving us forgiveness of sin allowing the Father to look at us with favor and grace, mercy, love. Lord, you are great. Your work is great. Your work is perfect. You are the righteous. We thank you. We thank you that you're our advocate, our lawyer. You're a great one indeed. Great are you, Lord the greatest lawyer anyone could ever have, the greatest attorney anyone could ever have, as you intercede for us, as you plead for us on our behalf by your death and resurrection. We thank you. We thank you. God, I pray that as people test and examine their hearts, that you would reveal the true condition of their soul. And if there's any self-deception, that you would just draw them to you. Finally, genuinely, and truly, we thank you. In your name we pray.
Jesus. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those who give generously to this ministry. Without you, this ministry would not be possible. If you feel led to give, please use the link below as we seek to make a difference in people's lives. Also, please make sure to share this with your family and your friends. Again, thank you so much for listening.